Is it time for a mind shift? If you don't know what that means, then join your host, Dr. Clint Haycock, a former evangelical Christian pastor and Bible college teacher of over 20 years, along the journey of deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, life, religion, and spirituality. episode where I'm going to take a look at what would it be like to live in a theocracy. For those of you that have read A Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood, you'll kind of get an understanding, or maybe you've seen the series, you'll get an understanding of what it actually would be like to live in a theocratic kingdom, a kingdom where, quote unquote, God is the king over the land and is that going to be something that we're really going to want to be a part of? Especially now, if you live in the United States, we're seeing an increasing sort of last gasp on the part of the Christian right. The evangelical involvement in politics and the dominionist angle of it all. They're trying to overturn Roe versus Wade. They've been working at this for decades now. And they've succeeded in states like Texas and Mississippi, which is, of course, the even more restrictive one than Texas, we're talking about the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. And now we've seen some sort of a leak, at least as I'm doing this recording now, on the part of the Supreme Court indicating that they're just about to overturn the 1973 Roe versus Wade ruling legalizing abortion. And of course, evangelicals are ecstatically happy. Of course, they're ironically unhappy about the fact that it was leaked and they're not necessarily rejoicing just yet over the fact that it's seemingly about to be overturned by the Supreme Court. But let's take a look at this issue of, so you want to live in a theocracy. What does it mean? What does it look like? Is it a utopian world? Let's begin with a couple of quotes. Quote, everybody's going to benefit, whether they're Christians, whether they're Protestant Christians or Catholic Christians or Jews or whatever they be, everybody will benefit from having a Christian culture where Christian principles reign supreme where people in places of leadership recognize the supremacy of God, there will be more freedom, more prosperity, more security for every law-abiding American, end quote. That was the Reverend Joseph Moorcraft from a Bill Moyers interview, a series he did in 1987. And that's a really interesting one if you want to look that up because it was all about Christian Reconstructionism. And there's an interview with R.J. Rush Dooney, who is, of course, the father of Christian Reconstructionism. So you can find the transcripts on Bill Moyer's website. I don't know if the whole episode is still available, but you can see that interview with Rush Dooney on YouTube. But it's certainly worth looking up the transcripts on Bill Moyer's website. That's a really fascinating insight. And I've done a lot of talking about Christian Reconstructionism and the roots of Dominion theology. So look that up on Bill Moyer's site. Another quote from David Barton a major Christian nationalist. He runs wall builders out of Alito, Texas. And David Barton said, quote, In short, if God-fearing citizens are not involved at the ballot box, God-fearing leaders will not be elected, God-honoring policies will not be enacted, and the respective city, state, or nation will not be blessed by God. End quote. You could just see the dominionist and Christian nationalist angle that David Barton is pushing there. Another quote from Ralph Drollinger, who's the director of Capital Ministries. He said, quote, Scripture is replete with illustrations, examples, and commands 
that served to underscore the importance of winning governmental authorities for Christ. A movement for Christ among governing authorities holds promise to change the direction of the whole country, end quote. And again, just like with the David Barton quote, you can see the blending of Christian nationalism together with the dominionist angle. What they're trying to do is they're trying to save, quote unquote, top leaders. They're trying to install Christians at key positions in government. And the belief is that if we can get enough Christians in charge, God will start blessing America again and we'll have that fabled Christian nation status once again. And that is the hallmark of both Christian nationalism as well as, as I say, dominion theology. And then we've got one last quote. This is from Christian Reconstructionist Gary DeMar. He's kind of a disciple of Rush Dooney and Gary North, who was Rush Dooney's son-in-law. He runs an outfit called American Vision. He says, quote, we now live in a secular humanist theocracy. I want to change that to a government with God at its head, end quote. On paper, then, it would seem like a theocracy would usher in an unbelievably prosperous, healthy, and mutually beneficial utopian society. At its core, Dominion theology has this sort of a rising tide lifts all boats argument to justify its agenda. They argue something like this. They say, if Christians were indeed running the world... Everyone would benefit and be incredibly happy and content. And among both dominionists and now increasingly in evangelical mainstream circles, a favorite verse they love to quote is Proverbs 29.2, which says, When the righteous rule, the people rejoice, but when a wicked man rules, the people groan. Now, in theory, it sounds like a wonderful idea, doesn't it? What could possibly be wrong with a God-ordained system of governance with laws that benefit all of humanity? Since, of course, the argument goes, they originate with their creator. Who knows what is best for everyone? It has all the makings of a utopian society, surely, rather than a dystopian one. No one wants to live in a place like the fictional Gilead from A Handmaid's Tale, surely. But as we're seeing currently... For example, on the part of the Christian rights efforts to outlaw abortions in states like Texas and Mississippi, and of course this recent so-called leak from the Supreme Court that indicates they're about to overturn Roe v. Wade, not everyone benefits from such draconian laws imposed on an entire nation. In fact, speaking of Margaret Atwood, I mentioned she wrote that dystopian novel about a fictional theocratic kingdom called Gilead in her work The Handmaid's Tale. She recently commented in a May 2022 piece in The Atlantic about the Supreme Court's apparent decision to overturn Roe v. Wade and how America is actually beginning to resemble her dystopian theocracy of Gilead. The article is titled, I Invented Gilead, the Supreme Court is Making It Real. She states that although she had started writing the novel in the early 1980s, she gave up several times only to finish it years later. But she remarks in the article that, quote, Although I eventually completed this novel and called it The Handmaid's Tale, I stopped writing it several times because I considered it too far-fetched. Silly me. Theocratic dictatorships do not lie only in the distant past. There are a number of them on the planet today. What is to prevent the United States from becoming one of them? End quote. Unfortunately, though, for those who do long to establish some form of theocracy here on Earth... History is replete with examples of what happens when Christians take charge of civic society. And the picture is not a pretty one. Even before the establishment of the church, one can point to the Old Testament where, according to the text at least, and we'll just take it at face value as a narrative, there actually was a true theocratic kingdom on earth. It'll be beneficial to take a close look at the picture 
presented by the narrative of the Old Testament to see if the theocratic kingdom that the text speaks of there was more of a utopia or a dystopia. And then we're going to conclude by taking a look at some historical examples of theocratic kingdoms that have been attempted, that have been established here on earth. What was the result? What was the outcome? Let's first of all take a look at this Old Testament theocracy. Now, according to the biblical account, which, as I say, if you just take it at face value, simply read it as a narrative, we're not going to get into all the higher criticism and everything else, prior to the first monarchical kingdom established under King Saul, for countless centuries, Israel's existence was defined as a theocratic kingdom. The text makes it clear that in the Old Testament, from the time that Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, right through the book of Judges, Yahweh was the king over the nation. Although human leaders were indeed delegated to carry out his orders, such as the various leaders profiled in the book of Judges, the text indicates that God alone ran the nation of Israel as its sole king. There was no human king. He established a framework of laws in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, by which rules Israelite society function as a theocracy. Although it is true that God installed human leaders, according to the text anyway, such as Moses, Joshua, and later a series of judges, they did not function as human kings like all the other nations around them. Rather, they served as arbiters of divine law and justice, ensuring that Israel upheld the terms of their covenant with God. The Mosaic law served as the legal means or basis by which Israel maintained its covenant status. As the book of Deuteronomy, which is nothing more than a series of sermons preached by Moses to the entire nation of Israel just prior to them entering the promised land of Canaan, the book makes abundantly clear that Israel at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 and 20 had agreed to the terms of a conditional covenant. Such were the terms of the covenant with Yahweh. Obedience brought blessing from God, while disobedience brought about an increasingly harsh series of curses and judgments on the nation. In other words, in God's theocratic kingdom, the prophets served as his mouthpieces, calling Israel to repent and return to the standards of the covenant or face divine judgment. And of course, as we know from the text, the Israelites almost always failed to listen to the warnings of the prophet and fell into sin. On the face of it, then, one would think that as the divine creator of humanity, according to the biblical record anyway, the book of Genesis 1 and 2, chapters 1 and 2, God would know what was best for his created beings. According to that line of reasoning, then, surely the Old Testament would present a picture of a utopian society in which Israel lived as an absolutely ideal system of perfect divine rule. But as even my Bible college professors were fond of pointing out, The narrative reveals the exact opposite of that. As mentioned, the Israelites' existence was defined by a conditional covenant with God, with the terms of the covenant defined by a series of incredibly restrictive laws mandated by God. Many laws, for example, involve misogynistic and anti-homosexual rules, for example, with the punishment for various offenses involving public stoning for what to us today would seem like fairly minor infractions. Even an incorrigible child could be dragged out into the public square and stoned by the community, or a homosexual, or a woman who was found to have lost her virginity prior to marriage. The law also endorsed human slavery. It was perfectly legal, for example, for an Israelite to own a person from another nation captured in battle. 
One would think that if God were indeed a God of justice, then surely he would be against this most vile of human practices. Yet, not even Paul in his New Testament epistles, uh, again, taking the text at face value, he, take, he doesn't take a stand against the Roman form of slavery in his day. Instead, Paul counsels again and again Christian slaves not to seek to change their situation and to joyfully submit to their masters or their slave owners as unto Christ. So reading through the Old Testament narrative history reveals that the nation of Israel constantly broke the terms of the covenant with God, falling into idolatry and heinous sins by imitating the competing pagan religions of their neighboring nations. According to the text, Whenever this would happen, an increasingly angry and jealous God consistently responded to these violations of the covenant by inflicting a series of harsh punishments on his chosen people. Despite the increasing severity of these judgments, his, com his people continue to stray from him time and time again. So obviously, the reward and punishment system of government governance instituted by God simply did not work, according to the text. Harsh judgments, including failed crops, economic ruin, destruction, defeat, and enslavement at the hands of surrounding nations, and there's more that I could name, they all fail to motivate the Israelites to love and obey their God. Looking at it objectively from the outside, it starts to resemble the cycle of an abusive spouse or partner raining down punishment and all manner of abuses on his or her other partner in a vain attempt to get the other person to love and obey them. Small wonder the efforts of Yahweh in the text constantly failed to win the hearts and minds of the people and cultivate a heartfelt love for their jealous, capricious, and angry ruler. As the historical record of the Old Testament shows then, the books of Kings and Chronicles unequivocally agree that all of this wickedness culminated in God issuing his final decrees of judgment. First, the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel by Assyria, followed a few centuries later by the raising of Jerusalem by the kingdom of Babylon. The text indicates that it was God himself, a jealous and angry God himself, who directed all of this activity, meaning, if we interpret it objectively, that his own people experienced all of this brutality at his own hand. One gets the unfailing picture of a vengeful deity, angry and jealous, betrayed one time too many by his unfaithful people who's finally has had enough and ends up sending unspeakable suffering on his so-called chosen people. Following this final crushing defeat, according to the text again, God sent the remnants of the southern kingdom of Judah into Babylonian exile for 70 years. Finally, the minor prophets revealed that even after the miraculous return from exile, God still visited harsh punishments on them for their failures to prioritize him and to obey his commandments as voiced once again through the prophets. None of this history of the very first theocratic kingdom sounds like, to me at least, in any way, shape, or form, a utopian existence. Now, I can hear evangelicals already raising an objection to my argument, and I would argue this too when I was an evangelical in Bible college and seminary, and I would say, now wait a minute, hang on a second, that is the whole point. The Old Testament presents a case study whereby, of course, Israel was going to fail to live up to the law. And this is Paul's argument in the book of Romans and in other places, and that is that you cannot be justified according to the works of the law. It pointed us to Christ. You see, that's the whole point. The sacrificial system failed. The law failed. 
But as I look at it now, I look at it more objectively. I think, now, wait a minute. Why wasn't it perfect? Why was it an incomplete, flawed system? If that's the case, I would not want to have lived during those decades and millennia when Israel was under this so-called theocratic kingdom. It sounds to me like a horrific dystopian experience. Why wouldn't the creator God, if that's what the text presents, why wouldn't the creator God give his people a better system by which to live where they could be justified? It doesn't make any sense. So I dismiss that argument now on the face of it. I don't agree with that. Anyway, let's move on from our biblical theology. Let's take a look at the first example of a human sort of theocracy from the historical record. In addition to the biblical record, then, there are also many historical examples of what happens when Christians seize the reins of power and attempt to enforce their particularly sectarian religious rules upon the wider society. Just as the Old Testament narrative demonstrates time and time again, far from establishing a utopia, oftentimes what results is a brutal and oppressive regime designed to stamp out ruthlessly all manner of so-called sinful behavior and any opposition taking the form of so-called heresies or other false religions. Those in power at the time, they get to decide not only what the rules are according to their interpretation of the Bible, but also how they'll be enforced, often in the most barbarous fashion. Typically, what has been the result when a theocratic government gains control over a region or a nation? Do any clear patterns emerge? I believe that they certainly do. Oftentimes, the result involves the following activities. The banishment of those labeled heretics or enemies, forced conversions to Christianity from other religions deemed false, illegitimate seizure of the property of those deemed heretics, religious policing, fines for breaking restrictive religious laws, the official banning of all sorts of, quote, sinful activities, misogynistic rules against women, and finally, hideous punishments, torture, and even execution of alleged heretics have all been commonplace throughout church history. The first example of this type of activity involves the various iterations of the Inquisition, originating with the Catholic Church's efforts to root out such heresies as the Cathars in the 12th and 13th century. The Inquisition found its most hideous expression in the terrors of the Spanish Inquisition beginning in the 16th century. In their efforts to unify Spain, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella decided that the Jews and Muslims, who mostly were Moors from North Africa, who had occupied much of southern Spain for generations, they needed to be dealt with in order to establish a unified Spain. The Spanish Inquisition lasted for centuries, spreading as far as the New World, and was finally abolished, believe it or not, by Napoleon in the early 19th century when he invaded Spain. As an incredibly powerful office set up by the Catholic Church, originally, as I said, in the medieval period, the aim of the Inquisition was to root out and punish heresy throughout Europe and the Americas. It was infamous for the severity of its tortures and the persecution of Jews and Muslims. Let's take a look at the actual roots of the Spanish Inquisition. It began with the early and organized persecution against the Cathar heretics in southern France in the 12th and 13th centuries following the Albigensian Crusade. Then the medieval Inquisition started spreading and it encompassed the pursuit of the Waldensians in northern Italy and then Germany. Pope Gregory charged the Franciscan and Dominican orders in 1231 with the task of running heretics to ground. Arriving in a particular city or town, 
the inquisitors would make their presence known and give the hapless citizens a period of time to confess their heresies freely. If they confessed, they, they could receive as a sentence for their crimes anything from a pilgrimage to a public flogging. Those who refused to confess, however, after being accused, could face torture and ultimately execution, such as being burned at the stake. The Inquisition took on its most brutal form in Spain, though, by the late 15th century. As I mentioned, when King Ferdinand II and Isabella of Spain, they blamed corruption in the Spanish, Spanish Catholic Church on the conversos. Now, who were the conversos? These were Jews who had previously been forced to convert to Christianity in order to survive centuries of anti-Semitism in Spain. Suspicious that they were still practicing their religion in secret and jealous of their financial clout as wealthy bankers and financiers, a number of suspicious Spanish Catholics began accusing the conversos of heresy, often, it seems, in a naked attempt to take their wealth from them by using the charge of heresy as a convenient option. In other words, let the church do the dirty work for them and take their property and their money. Those Jews lucky enough to avoid being sent to brutal ghettos would ultimately flee Spain, leaving all their possessions behind to be seized by the crown. This windfall was later used to fund a crusade against the Islamic Moors, who had lived peacefully for centuries alongside Christians and Jews in southern Spain. Desiring to avoid execution, those unlucky Jews who decided to stay in Spain confessed to the crime of heresy, but then were required to point out other heretic conversos. By the end of 1481, many hundreds of these denounced conversos met their fate by being tortured and ultimately burned at the stake. The Inquisition spread into places like Portugal and other parts of Europe. It ultimately would spread into the New World as Spanish forces colonized huge swathes of South America. As a result of their colonizing efforts and their desire to promote the primacy of the Catholic faith in the New World, by 1570, as mentioned, it spread there also. Deemed heretics for following the teachings of Luther and Calvin, Many unlucky Lutherans and Protestants caught there were tortured and burned at the stake. Back in Europe, when Spain conquered Portugal in 1580, Philip II rounded up countless Jews who had fled Spain seeking sanctuary in Portugal. Many of these, too, were executed. In southern Spain, following the successful crusade against the Moors, many of them in the newly conquered Spanish territory were banished, forced, just like the Jews were, to flee Spain, leaving all their belongings behind. As countless Jewish conversos had done previously, many Muslim Moors who remained in Spain likewise made the decision to abandon their faith and convert to Christianity. Their aim in forsaking their Islamic faith was to avoid banishment or the horrors and the tortures of the Inquisition. Nonetheless, despite being forced to convert to Christianity, like the conversos, they were always viewed with suspicion. At any time, just as with the conversos, they could always be accused of practicing Islam in secret. Without knowing who had accused them or what the charges against them were, they could suddenly end up in prison being arrested, awaiting horrific torture and possible execution by being burned at the stake. Beyond the torture and execution of heretics, the Inquisition even banned certain prohibited books in Europe beginning in 1542. At the Council of Trent, for example, 1545 to 1563, the original list of banned books was superseded by a more comprehensive index of prohibited authors and books, which after 1571 was kept up to date in a separate though related congregation of the index. 
the Spanish Inquisition by far the most severe iteration of those institutionalized tribunals designed by the Catholic Church to root out heresy, as I mentioned, finally came to an end when Napoleon and the French army invaded Spain in 1808. His brother Joseph, made king of Spain by Napoleon, officially abolished it that same year, despite efforts to revive it after Napoleon's defeat at Waterloo in 1815, the Inquisition finally came to an inglorious end in 1834. The second example of Christians exercising jurisdiction over a region relates to the Italian city of Florence under the control of the fundamentalist Dominican friar Savonarola in the 15th century. As part of an order dedicated to rooting out heresy, his extreme views resulted in the so-called bonfire of the vanities in 1497, the public burning of anything deemed to cause people to sin. These included uh, invaluable priceless works of art, cosmetics, books, and dresses even. Inflamed by Savonarola's fiery rhetoric, his preaching, his followers dressed in white gowns and went door-to-door -door collecting vanities to be burned on, the, on a giant pyre lit in the Piazza del Signoria and surmounted by a figure of Satan. As he gained prominence in the city of Florence, Savonarola promoted a theocracy and declared that Christ was king over the city. The Florentines, initially buoyed by Savonarola's claims of heavenly visions that God would bless the city and all its inhabitants would ultimately prosper, at first they embraced his campaign to rid the city of all so-called vice. Laws were passed at the insistence of Savonarola against sodomy, that is, any same-sex relations, adultery, and public drunkenness. Groups of boys and young men policed the streets, watching out for any moral transgressions such as immodest dress or behavior. Ultimately, however, although supporting Savonarola's religious strictures at first, on May 12, 1497, Pope Alexander VI finally grew tired of him and excommunicated him for heresy and sedition. Savonarola, for his part, responded by calling the Catholic Church a whore, which later led to him being arrested and imprisoned. Under torture, Savonarola confessed to having invented his prophecies and visions, only to recant and then confessed again. Ironically, on the morning of May 23, 1498, in the very city of Florence, Savonarola, along with two other heretic priests, were taken out of their cell, publicly denounced as heretics and schismatics, and then hanged. Following the hanging, their bodies were then burned to discourage devotees from scavenging for holy relics. The third example of such fanatical religious extremes involves the Swiss city of Geneva under the rule of John Calvin in the 16th century. Yes, that is the same John Calvin who instituted Calvinism, Calvin's Institutes, and all the rest of it. All of this took place, of course, during the context of the Protestant Reformation in Europe. As a heretic, Protestant, and rightly fearing for his life, Calvin fled his native France because it was too dangerous to stay there. Ultimately, he found sanctuary in Geneva in Switzerland. Propelled from his preferred religious studies into religious politics, Calvin attempted to reform Geneva beginning in the year 1542. With the aid and authority of the city council, Calvin became what amounted to a religious dictator, empowered to root out all forms of heresy and Catholicism. Thus, to enforce his rigid religious views, Calvin instituted what amounted essentially to a theocratic police state in Geneva, a true totalitarian regime. According to William Manchester's work, A World Lit Only by Fire, he describes the situation in Calvin's Geneva. Quote, he says, 
all Protestant regimes were stiffly doctrinal to a degree unknown until now in Rome. John Calvin's Geneva, however, represented the ultimate in repression. The city-state of Geneva, which became known as the Protestant Rome, was also, in effect, a police state, ruled by a consistory of five pastors and twelve lay elders, with the bloodless figure of the dictator looming over all. In physique, temperament, and conviction, Calvin, who lived from 1509 to 1564, was the inverted image of the free-willing, permissive, high-living popes whose excesses had led to Lutheran apostasy. And Manchester goes on, he says that Calvin was frail, thin, short, and lightly bearded, with ruthless, penetrating eyes. He was humorless and short-tempered. The slightest criticism enraged him. Those who questioned his theology he called pigs, asses, riffraff, dogs, idiots, and stinking beasts. One morning, he found a poster on his pulpit accusing him of gross hypocrisy. A suspect was arrested. No evidence was produced, but he was tortured day and night for a month till he confessed. Screaming with pain, he was lashed to a wooden stake. Penultimately, his feet were nailed to the wood. Ultimately, he was decapitated. End quote. In Calvin's Geneva, citizens were routinely tortured, exiled, or executed for the most minor of infractions, which include, among the following, censorship of the press, even the slightest criticism of Calvin, missing church services or skipping the Eucharist, naming children after Catholic saints, or any sinful activity deemed backsliding. Religious police could enter people's homes at any time to check on their status. Fifty-eight people were executed during the first five years of Calvin's rule. Seventy-six were exiled. George Denia, in an article on Calvin's Geneva, relates a terrifying story. He says, quote, Most notorious was the case of Michael Servetus, the scientist and theologian with whom Calvin had corresponded earlier but disagreed on religious dogma. Specifically, Servetus denied the existence of the Trinity and maintained there was only one God. On his way to Italy, he made the fatal error of passing through Geneva, was arrested, tried for heresy by the city council, and condemned to death. Calvin agreed with the sentence and wanted him beheaded. But the council decided to have him slowly roasted at the stake in a fire made expressly of green wood so that it would burn more slowly and prolong his agony, end quote. Life in such a theocratic city under Calvin's rule must have surely been a dystopian nightmare. Again, according to Manchester, he says, quote, But even the elite, the clergy, of course, were allowed few diversions. Calvinists worked hard because there wasn't much else they were permitted to do. Feasting was proscribed, so were dancing, singing, pictures, statues, relics, church bells, organs, altar candles, indecent or irreligious songs, staging or attending theatrical plays, wearing rouge, jewelry, lace, or immodest dress, speaking disrespectfully of your betters, extravagant entertainment, swearing, gambling, playing cards, hunting, drunkenness, naming children after anyone but figures in the Old Testament, reading immoral or irreligious books, and sexual intercourse except between partners of different genders, who were married to one another, end quote. I would certainly not want to live in Calvin's Geneva, another example of a theocratic kingdom set up in a city like Savonarola. And once again, we see the same patterns repeat.
when we come back from the break, we're going to take a look at two more historic examples of some form of a theocratic kingdom that has been set up on earth. What were the results? How did it go down? And would you want to live in a theocracy? I just wanted to mention what's coming up here in the next few episodes here on MindShift Podcast. Some really cool stuff coming down the pipeline. I've got a chat with Jen Senko. She's the author of The Brainwashing of My Dad. That's going to be coming out really soon. But before that happens, I'm going to be talking with Peter Montgomery of The Right Wing Watch. We chatted about the Texas abortion law, I think it was about a year ago, and we're going to touch base again on this recent situation in the Supreme Court. It seems like with this leak that I mentioned earlier, they're about to overturn Roe versus Wade, and so we're going to take a deep dive into who's behind it, the sort of Christian right, the dominionist angle, what have they been working on for actually decades now, installing Supreme Court justices with the Trump era and installing judges on numerous benches. They have been working hard to overturn Roe versus Wade, and it ties in, as I mentioned at the top of the show, with this issue of theocracy taking dominion as well as Christian nationalism. This is really what the agenda is of the Christian right. They believe that America was a Christian nation. It strayed from the path of righteousness and it should become one again. And part of that means banning abortion, banning same-sex marriages and all the rest of it. And so they're working hard and they're succeeding. Right now, they're winning and they're going to establish, in their view, some form of, of a theocratic kingdom. So I'm interested to talk to Peter about that. And then finally, I'm going to be talking to Melanie McAllister. I should say Professor Melanie McAllister. She's the Professor of American Studies and International Affairs at George Washington University. She's written a book called The Kingdom of God Has No Borders, A Global History of American Evangelicals. We've been trying to get this together. We have finally booked an episode in where we're going to do a recording talking about her book, The Larger Context of American Evangelicalism, something I've been done, I've done a lot of work on in the past, and we're going to take a deep dive into that. So I am also looking forward to talking to Melanie McAllister about her work. And then I wanted to mention, too, that coming up in July, my good friend Dr. Terry Daniel, she's putting on the conference on death, grief, and belief. And I've got a way for you to get a discount on that. And if you want more information, I'll put the links to the conference in the show notes. I'll show you how to get a discount. You can message me. You can DM me on Twitter. You can follow me at MindShift2018. I'll probably put out some tweets about this as well. You can also find out some more information. Message me from the MindShift Podcast Facebook page. That's just a public page. And you can find out more information on that. You can also support the show on Patreon and get access to some fantastic MindShift Zoom calls. In fact, we've got one coming up at the end of this month. We've got Stephen Mather and his daughter, Celine. They were just on the show a little bit ago talking about their experiences. He's an ex-Jehovah's Witness, and she never was part of it. But it's a fascinating story. So they're going to be our guests coming in the end of May. And then in the month of June, we have got Jen Senko. She's going to be coming in. Of course, again, she's the author of The Brainwashing of My Dad. And that will be the final MindShift Zoom call in the month of June. We're going to take a break after that for the summer and pick it back up in September. So we'll have some new guests coming in. So how can you get on those calls? How can you meet these fantastic returning guests? Again, you can support the show on Patreon, and that gets you access to these calls that we hold every month, as well as our patrons-only calls. 
And in fact, speaking of patrons, I wanted to give a huge thank you to Alita Diggins. She is the latest supporter of the show on Patreon at the $5 a month level. So thank you, Alita, for your support. It's greatly appreciated. All right, let's get back into this conversation, looking at some historical examples of what happens when people have tried to set up some form of theocratic kingdom on Earth. Has it been a utopia or dystopia? I'll leave that up to you to decide. Let's take a look at a fourth example of Christians who seize political power. This includes Great Britain under the reign of Oliver Cromwell and the Puritans following the English Civil War in the 17th century. Now, who was Oliver Cromwell and how did he come to power? Now, I don't want to get too much into this one because this is a really fascinating historical period for me. When we moved to Chester, England about 16, 17 years ago now, I got into the local history of the place and there's layers and layers of history but I got into the English Civil War that I didn't know anything about. I was absolutely fascinated by it. But to cut a very long story short, if you don't know anything about the history of it, I'll lay it out really quickly. The Civil War broke out in 1642. It went on until 1651. It was fought between the forces of Parliament, which were known popularly as the Roundheads, and the Royalist forces of King Charles I, who were popularly known as the Cavaliers. Now, there's a lot of reasons for why the war started. I don't want to get into it, but basically it had a lot to do with issues related to the governance of King Charles. He was seen as a tyrant and so forth, and there were some issues of religious freedom. Many in Parliament were Puritans, and of course Cromwell, as a member of Parliament, was also a Puritan. We might consider him today a real fundamentalist. Some would say he was an exceptionally religious man. That's one way to describe him. So during the war, Cromwell rose to prominence. He began as a subordinate during the war, but ultimately he became commander-in-chief of what was called the New Model Army. This was a remodeled modern army that Cromwell took a significant hand in reforming. He was also one of the signatories of King Charles's death warrant in the year 1649. And after being found guilty at his trial of being a tyrant and committing treason for waging war against his own people, the king was beheaded in January of that same year. Although the king had been executed, the war was far from over. Cromwell went on to lead a parliamentary invasion of Ireland from 1649 to 1650, viewing the many Irish Catholics who had fought on the side of King Charles I as traitors and as a threat to the Commonwealth. Viewing the Catholic Church with open hostility because, in his fundamentalist view, they denied the primacy of the Bible over papal and clerical authority, they were persecuting Protestants all over Europe, Cromwell led a nine-month brutal campaign to crush any rebellion that might be lingering in Ireland. Cromwell and his soldiers committed multiple acts of what would rightly be called today war crimes against Irish soldiers, priests, and civilians who tried to surrender but were then murdered outright. In his book, Oliver Cromwell, God's Executioner, Michael O. Shakru, and I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that right, so I apologize to him, but he comments on Cromwell's legacy when he states, quote, In the mid-17th century, a lethal combination of racial superiority and religious bigotry, reinforced by a genuine sense of outrage at events during the initial month of the Ulster Rebellion, created the ideal conditions for Cromwell's campaign of terror against Irish Catholics. 
His conduct shocked contemporary opinion, not only in Ireland but also on the continent, and also certainly prolonged the war by a number of years. He goes on, This conflict results in a catastrophic loss of life of both soldiers and civilians alongside the destruction of much of the country's economy and infrastructure. As commander-in-chief of the army, the responsibilities for the excesses for the military must be laid firmly at his door, while the harsh nature of the post-war settlement also bears his personal imprint, end quote. What is the lasting legacy of Cromwell just in Ireland? Even today, many there revile him. His brutal tactics against the Irish Catholic population, essentially committing genocide and war crimes, left a lasting imprint on the country and gave rise to Irish nationalism. This, in part, would lead to later conflicts in Ireland, such as the Troubles, that lasted from the late 1960s through to the late 1980s. This was a war that was fought between ostensibly the Catholics and the Protestants, although it was far more than merely a religious or sectarian conflict. It was a war fought over the status of Northern Ireland, whether or not it would remain part of Great Britain or be united with the Republic of Ireland. On Cromwell's legacy, Oshakru comments that, quote, In Ireland itself, the Protestants of Ulster, uncomfortable perhaps with his reputation as a regicide, choose to commemorate William of Orange instead, while for many Catholics he remains a hate figure guilty of crimes against humanity. Cromwell was no monster, but he did commit monstrous acts. A warrior of Christ, he says, somewhat like the crusaders of medieval Europe, he acted as God's executioner, exacting revenge and crushing all opposition, convinced throughout of the legitimacy of his cause and striving to build a better world for the chosen few, end quote. Following his victories in Ireland, Cromwell returned to England where in 1653, with the backing of the army, he sent the MPs home and became effectively a king over England, ruling as what was called the Lord Protector until his death in 1658. As a Puritan, Cromwell not only tried to live his life according to his interpretation of the Bible, he believed, of course, that everyone else in the nation should too. Pushing the Puritan work ethic, the belief that hard work would lead to God's blessing and ultimately to heaven, Cromwell frowned on what he would term pointless enjoyment. For example, both Christmas and the singing of Christmas carols were officially banned. Cromwell labeled them as both popish and wasteful activities. According to C.N. Truman, quote, Cromwell banned Christmas as people would have known it then. By the 17th century, Christmas had become a holiday of its celebration and enjoyment, especially after the problems caused by the Civil War. Cromwell wanted it returned to a religious celebration where people thought about the birth of Jesus rather than ate and drank too much. In London, soldiers were ordered to go around the streets and take, by force if necessary, food being cooked for a Christmas celebration. The smell of a goose being cooked could bring trouble. Traditional Christmas decorations like holly were banned, end quote. Cromwell also introduced a series of restrictive laws designed to improve the morality of the country, including the following, the closing down of many inns and theaters and banning such popular activities as drinking alcohol and bear baiting, just to name a few. Instead of feast days, Cromwell introduced a mandatory monthly fast day. In Cromwell's Britain, both work and sport on a Sunday were illegal. Boys playing football, or soccer, on that holy day could be whipped. Women found doing any unnecessary work on a Sunday could be sentenced to the stocks. 
Even going for a walk on the Lord's Day, unless it involved walking to church, could result in a fine. Swearing could also result in a fine. Repeated infractions sent the offender to prison. Cromwell used soldiers to enforce his laws throughout the nation. Just like as in Calvin's Geneva, any woman or girl caught wearing makeup or modeling what was considered to be immodest dress, which included dresses considered to be too colorful, they could also be punished. Roaming the streets of Britain's cities and towns, Cromwell soldiers would scrub the makeup off any female they caught violating these rules. But by the end of his tenure as Lord Protector, all of these harsh rules and punishments had not exactly endeared Cromwell to the people of Britain. Many, in fact, hated him for his restrictive religious laws and banning of all sorts of fun activities. Now, when he died, although he was buried in Westminster Abbey with all the pomp and circumstance due his office, this is the historic burial place of English kings, once King Charles II became restored to the throne in 1660, Cromwell's body was dug up, it was put on trial as a traitor and a regicide. That's a person who is responsible for the murder of a king or a queen. Following his trial, his body was found guilty, symbolically hanged from a gallows at Tyburn, the classic place of execution in London, and finally it was subjected to a posthumous beheading. His headless body was unceremoniously dumped into a pit, and his head was put on a pike, and it was displayed in London for years. Such was the sort of unceremonious end to the reign of Oliver Cromwell, the Lord Protector of England. Let's take a look at the fifth and final example of what happens when Christians begin to possess or seize political power, an example from, believe it or not, modern-day America. Our story begins with a certain John Alexander Dewey, who was a Scottish-born faith-healing congregational minister. Dewey emigrated to America from Australia in the late 19th century, where he had had a colorful career as a preacher, a faith healer, and evangelist. I say colorful. As a preacher, he'd attracted a large following, and by 1882, he was pastor of Sackville Street Tabernacle in Collingwood, which is a suburb of Melbourne. But ultimately, his authoritarian leadership led to a split in the church, at which point Dewey was fined and jailed for more than a month for leading unauthorized processions. Upon emigrating to the United States from Australia, or maybe he was fleeing there, who knows, he picked right up where he'd left off, first in California operating as a faith healer, and then moving to the Chicago area where he set up shop adjacent to the World's Fair in 1893 staging large spectacles known as divine healings made up largely of audience members drawn from the nearby fair, it turned out that his so-called healings were dubious at best. He was known to stage healings and only selected carefully screened individuals who were allowed to come on stage. Many beneficiaries of, a he of his healings turned out to be audience plants. But after buying a plot of land about 40 miles away from Chicago, he announced in 1900 the founding of the city of Zion, by the next year, 1901, he had established Zion, Illinois, designed to be a theocratic utopia, which, in his words, was, quote, founded by the will of God. As the general overseer of Zion, and later over all of Christendom, he would claim, Dewey owned everything in Zion, including all of the land, and subsequently laid down the law for all of his devoted followers. Algeo, in an Atlas Obscura article on the subject, comments that, quote, Zion's residents were required to comply with Dewey's strict interpretation of the scriptures. 
Billboards at the cross streets cautioned, one, that swearing or smoking or bad language of any sort are not allowed, one visitor noted. Also banned, saloons, pork, medical practices, gambling halls, drugstores, and fraternal lodges. Zion's residents were also required to tithe 10% of their income to Dewey, end quote. During his reign over the city of Zion, Dewey leased all of the properties he owned to his congregants, offering them a 1,100-year-long contract. This practice, together with the tithes of his followers and other industry there, resulted in Dewey becoming a multi-millionaire. Now, why a 1,100-year lease, I can hear you say? In Dewey's interpretation of Scripture, he figured that it would take Christ 100 years to usher in his kingdom, which would then be followed by a 1,000-year reign. So there you arrive at the 1,100-year lease. Dewey's lucrative contract with his devoted followers came with a series of restrictive rules attached, as I mentioned. McDermott states that, quote, the leases specifically forbade gambling, dancing, swearing, spitting, theaters, circuses, the manufacture and sale of alcohol or tobacco, pork, oysters, doctors, politicians, and tan-colored shoes. The city police carried a billy club on one hip and a Bible on the other. Their helmets were adorned with a dove and the word patience, end quote. Even Sinclair Lewis, in his 1935 book, It Can't Happen Here, dryly comments on the legacy of Dewey and the theocratic Zion when he states, quote, The American Moses, Dewey, and his theocracy at Zion City, Illinois, were the only results of the direct leadership of God, as directed and encouraged by Mr. Dewey and his even more spirited successor, Mr. Voliva, were that the holy denizens were deprived of oysters and cigarettes and cursing, and died without the aid of doctors instead of with it, end quote. Unfortunately for Dewey, while he himself lived in extravagant luxury in a style that any self-respecting cult leader would envy, the entire financial structure of Zion was continually in debt. Eventually it crashed, but the unfortunate Dewey was becoming too senile to handle all of its affairs. In 1905, while recuperating from a stroke down in Mexico, Dewey was ultimately deposed as leader of Zion by his former chief, Lieutenant William Voliva. Although he tried unsuccessfully to fight the coup through litigation, he was ultimately run out of town upon his return. He would later die in exile in 1907, and the Christian Catholic Church that he had founded collapsed. Despite these setbacks, however, Zion officially remained a theocracy until 1935, under the leadership of Voliva. Following Dewey's departure, according to McDermott, the city carried on with its religiously restrictive rules. Quote, Property values and income plummeted when the church collapsed, but municipal finances were kept robust through fines generated at the city line by a vigorous policing of unsuspecting motorists for offenses such as use of makeup, carrying liquor, smoking, and whistling on Sundays. End quote. Funny enough, somewhat like the ironic legacies of both Savonarola and Cromwell, the way they ended up, as we heard, Dewey was ultimately deposed and run out of Zion. The town had a kind of a spotted history after that and still remains a city today. It's got a population of about 25,000 people. There's a kind of a funny postscript to Dewey's story, though. Originally, he had designed the town logo in his own words, quote, for the purpose of the extension of the kingdom of God upon earth, where God shall rule in every department of family, industry, commercial, educational, ecclesiastical, and political life, end quote. Sounds like he was an early advocate of the Seven Mountains Mandate Dominion Theology. 
But Dewey's intention for a theocratic kingdom ultimately fell out of favor with the general public. According to the ChicagoHistory.org site, quote, in 1987, the Illinois chapter of American Atheists filed suit against Zion City, citing that its city seal, which contained a cross, a dove, and the phrase, God reigns, was unconstitutional. In 1992, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld a lower court decision that the city seal violated the principle of separation of church and state, and that the Christian symbolism must be removed. It concludes by saying, ironically, Zion City officials succeeded in, in incorporating the words in God we trust on the new city seal because the phrase was deemed acceptable religious language in the public arena, end quote. I just thought that it was a funny postscript to the story of John Alexander Dewey and his attempted theocracy in Zion, Illinois. Well, hopefully this has been an interesting historical overview that just sets the stage, I think, for the project that I've been working on for a long time the exploration of dominion theology, Christian reconstructionism, and the many iterations of dominion theology, such as the Seven Mountains Mandate, the New Apostolic Reformation, and so forth. When examining that material, you've got to ask yourself this question. Should Christians truly be in charge of society? What happens when they are allowed to run things? Although one could make a case that each of the above historical examples are, are some kind of anomaly, they can be explained away by examining their historical context, nonetheless, a clear pattern emerges. The examples consistently dem demonstrate that when Christians are, in fact, in charge of civil government, far from establishing a utopian society, what results are among the following restrictive rules and practices, as I mentioned before. Things like religious policing to enforce rigid rules, restricting marriage to monogamous heterosexual couples only, intolerance of other beliefs, practices, and religions, banning of anything that might lead to sin, mandatory church attendance or fines for skipping church, incredibly restrictive rules resulting in violators receiving harsh fines or cruel punishments such as whipping, imprisonment, or public execution. Historically, these sorts of activities are what make up a theocracy. In reality, it's a totalitarian state in which people who do not fit their religious narrow mold are in severe danger. And yet, undeniably, in America today, and indeed in other governments around the world also, both dominionists and Christian nationalists are hard at work infiltrating the corridors of power in order, in their view, to set up Christ's kingdom on earth, some form of a theocracy. As I mentioned, a great many religious right in America, evangelical and dominionist organizations exist to facilitate the infiltration of American government by Christians. And the most recent example uh, was the Trump era. Now, not long after winning office as an outgrowth of the evangelical support for his candidacy in 2016, President Donald Trump created what was called the Evangelical Advisory Board, the EAB. This board, made up of a number of influential dominionist, charismatic, and evangelical religious right leaders, gave them unprecedented access to the president. Throughout his four years in office, they continued to offer guidance and advice to Trump on a great many laws and public policies. There was even a lawsuit from Americans United. They charged that even more concerning was the fact that a great many of their meeting minutes were unrecorded so that the public had no idea of what topics and subject were being discussed, what advice was being given to Trump by these leaders. And as it turned out, the public would only find out about this board's influence after 
Trump would issue an executive order, as in, for example, his sudden July 2017 ban on transgender troops in the U.S. military, which caught even the Pentagon top brass off guard. This decision was later traced back to a meeting that the EAB held in which they had pressured him to release this executive order. Trump finally made the ruling after members of the EAB wrote him a letter asking him to reverse an earlier Obama-era ruling allowing transgender troops in the military, which he did shortly thereafter. Thus, the sway of the EAB on Trump administration policies affecting Americans was very substantial. Board member Reverend Johnny Moore later stated on C-SPAN that the EAB has had a, quote, pretty significant hand in directing or affecting administration policy, end quote. That reality should be a major concern going forward. In addition to the EAB, Trump elevated known dominionists and evangelical religious right figures to very high positions of influence, beginning, of course, with his choosing of Vice President Mike Pence, who was a classic fundamentalist evangelical. He appointed evangelicals such as Mike Pompeo to Secretary of State, Betsy DeVos as Secretary of Education, and Ben Carson as Secretary of HUD, Housing and Urban Development. Trump also replaced Jeff Sessions, who himself was an evangelical, and later installed William Barr as Attorney General. Although Barr is officially Catholic, he has long-standing ties to the Catholic Dominionist organization Opus Dei. Barr has also made numerous public statements attacking the church-state separation and the encroachment of what he calls secularism in both government and the wider nation of America. For example, Barr once stated in a 1992 speech that, quote, to the extent that a society's moral culture is based on God's law, it will guide men toward the best possible life, end quote. Barr's sentiment is straight out of Christian Reconstructionism. Finally, Trump appointed pastor, televangelist, and known Seven Mountains Dominionist Paula White Kane as not only his main spiritual advisor, she ended up leading his so-called Faith and Opportunities Initiative. So I'm going to conclude this episode with this question again that I asked at the beginning. Do we really want Christians in charge? Should they be running the country and enacting the laws to which all must obey regardless of their beliefs or political position? With the willing assistance of the Trump administration during his tenure, Dominionists and many influential religious right Christian fascists are working extremely hard even now to do just that, to establish some form of a theocratic kingdom or at least with Christians in charge. Even though Trump is no longer in office, of course, the unprecedented appointment of three conservative Supreme Court justice during his presidency, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett, is now apparently paying dividends for all the evangelicals who so rabidly supported him in their efforts to overturn Roe versus Wade. They're also seeking to turn America back into the fabled Christian nation status. They so firmly believe that it was they're working overtime to make it one again. Going back, though, to that piece in The Atlantic by Margaret Atwood, the author of The Handmaid's Tale, she reminds us that former historical examples of theocracies on Earth have not ended well and that the upcoming Supreme Court overturning of Roe v.ersus Wade has chilling implications when you begin to spin them out. She asserts in the piece that, quote, the Alito opinion, which was the piece that was leaked to the public, purports to be based on America's constitution but it relies on English jurisprudence from the 17th century, a time when a belief in witchcraft caused the death of many innocent people. The Salem witchcraft trials were trials. They had judges and juries, but they accepted spectral evidence, 
in the belief that a witch could send her double or specter out into the world to do mischief. She goes on. She says, thus, if you were sound asleep in bed with many witnesses, but someone reported you supposedly doing sinister things to a cow several miles away, you were guilty of witchcraft. You had no way of proving otherwise. Similarly, it will be very difficult to disprove a false accusation of abortion. The mere fact of a miscarriage or a claim by a disgruntled former partner will easily brand you a murderer. Revenge and spite charges will proliferate, as did arraignments for witchcraft 500 years ago. She concludes, she says, If Justice Alito wants you to be governed by the laws of the 17th century, you should take a close look at that century. Is that when you want to live? End quote. We didn't look at the Puritan reign in the early colonies of America, but that's what she's talking about. Now, indeed, what type of world do we want to inhabit? One last point I'm going to make here is from the Facebook page of Kerry Noble. It's called Noble Insights. I'm going to be interviewing him in the month of June. He is a former member of the white supremacist group, the Covenant Sword and Arm of the Lord, which is also known as the CSA. They were a far-right militant organization dedicated to Christian identity and survivalism, as a former member who actually served time in prison for his involvement in this militant group, Kerry has a unique insight into the mindset of Christian dominion. The overturning of Roe versus Wade is potentially but a slippery slope of Americans being systematically denied their rights in favor of establishing some form of a theocracy with, as I mentioned, a view to turning America back into that fabled Christian nation status that so many on the Christian right believe, as I said, not only it it was, but should be once again. So on a May 13, 2022 post on his page, Kerry put it succinctly when he stated, quote, if the Supreme Court reverses itself on Roe versus Wade, expect the next reversals to be, number one, prayer in schools. This one would be an easy one, he says. Number two, Second Amendment rights and doing away with gun control laws. Number three, same-sex marriage and LGBTQ rights. Number four, major selective immigration. Only the best minds would be let in. Number five, no separation between church and state with Christianity being the recognized religion. And he says also, number six, bring back segregation as the start of ending civil rights. Now he goes on, he says, these are the six easy ones. Then the court would be more aggressive in going back to 1776 if the right has its way. Some more things that might be repealed are number seven, mixed marriages. This one would be difficult, but not impossible. Number eight, do away with freedom of the press and freedom of speech. Now he says, these are the nine goals, including Roe, the religious right, which feeds the political right, once. Remember, the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, constitutional amendment has never passed, and it is still resisted today. Their extreme right wants to go back to the 1950s, at least, and 1776 at best. At issue in the minds of the religious right is the preservation of the white race, white men in absolute control, America first, and Christianity as the state religion. The goal is a white Christian America, nothing less, he says, built upon the law of Moses and fear slash control, end quote. Thanks for listening in to this episode on Mindship Podcast. I hope this has been a stimulating, thought-provoking process to go through some of these historical examples of what it means to live in some form of a theocratic kingdom, historical examples, and looking also at the Old Testament, at least the narrative version we see that it was not a utopian society. In fact, none of them were. They were far more dystopian. And I, for one, do not want to live in any kind of a theocratic kingdom, whether it's Christian, Muslim, any sort of religious theocratic kingdom 
No thank you, count me out. If you want to contact me, give me your thoughts, comments, questions, you can always follow me on Twitter at MindShift2018. You can support the show on Patreon. The links to that, as always, are in the show notes. And you can give me your thoughts, questions, comments on Twitter, or you can send me an email through the public MindShift Podcast Facebook page. I'll see you next time. We're going to come back with a conversation with Peter Montgomery of the Right Wing Watch. So I'm interested to hear from Peter and get an update on what's happening in terms of the religious right, the dominionist angle, what's their efforts, what's their aims behind this thrust to try to overturn Roe versus Wade. What does it all mean? So look for that episode coming out next with Peter Montgomery of the Right Wing Watch. Thanks for listening in. I'm Dr. Clint Haycock. I will see you again next time. 